I'm Lindsay Berra, and welcome to Food of the Gods, a podcast that explores how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. In these Gurus editions, we'll feature strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, recovery scientists, and other performance specialists who help athletes to be their best. This is part two of our conversation with Clint Wattenberg, Director of Sports Nutrition for the UFC. Clint was an All-American wrestler at Cornell University, where he later became Director of Sports Nutrition. Wattenberg has worked extensively to systematize and simplify nutrition and weight management for weight class athletes. He believes cutting weight can be done strategically and safely to support both athlete performance and health. At the UFC, he hopes to create a cultural shift surrounding how fighters make weight, but his theories will also change how all of us think about weight loss. So what is like the average amount of weight an athlete has to cut? I know that's a maybe a hard question to answer because everyone's different, but how much are pe- most people cutting before they have to go weigh in? So for the UFC, and I need to provide the caveat that these are adult professional athletes with a weigh-in that is the day before. Um, our recommendation is that athletes are arriving on Tuesday of fight week of 8% or less, 7% for our, our female athletes because of a number of factors, more complex hormonal systems, as well as the fact that they have less lean mass per body weight. So lean mass has more water to deliver when we're in an acute weight loss setting. So seven to 8% is, tends to be our recommendation to be able to lose effectively and consistently and not impair future metabolic health. We've seen athletes cut much more than that, but that tends to be about the average in then we ask our athletes to, to try to compete about 10% over their body, their, over their, their weight class. And again, that's about half of the athletes are at or below that, about half of them are above and some are egregiously above. And, and just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it and doesn't mean it's actually contributing positively to their performance. And so what we try to talk about and to think about and to communicate is the fact that nutrition is and can be a foundational part of your performance and your preparation. And if you abuse it, then it becomes something that is unstable and can be kind of derail your, your development process. So being bigger in the octagon has its, its obvious potential performance uh, benefit, but how sustainable is that? Can the, you know, the language I use with athletes here is, is that something that you can do five times in a row in order to make a championship run? And if it's not, then we either need to adjust your body composition and distribution to make that weight, or you need to rethink the weight, weight class that you're in. So I just put this into my calculator here. I want to make sure I understand this. My 128 pound self, if I'm going to cut 7%, that's about nine pounds that I would have to cut. And then if you want me competing at 10% over my weight class, 10 to that would put me almost to 140. So that would be a 119, like almost a 20 pound swing over the course of a few days. Is that right? No. So, so you would lose, let's say, let's call it 7% from 128. So you would compete. So if your weight class was, was 119, you'd be good to go. You would cut from today in three days, we would make 119 and then you'd gain 10%. So you'd be like 130 at that point. Oh, gain 10% from the other part, not above what I started at. I I get it. So yeah, 2%, 2 or 3% from where you started. And of course, that's where we want to start the acute weight loss. Now, athletes are are using a more long-term, what we, we call longitudinal weight descent. So it's going to be eight to 10 weeks or you know more or less by, by a little bit, depending on the needs to then get to that seven or 8%, which is fight week. 
And that fight week process is no longer about creating a calorie deficit. It's about stripping non-essential body mass while maintaining what we need, protein for muscle health and recovery, fat as our energy source, and then we're stripping the rest. In fight camp, we're creating a very strategic calorie deficit, right? So we're periodizing our carbohydrates, periodizing our nutrients to facilitate those energy systems optimization as, as we kind of talked about before. So I am a fighter. I have made my weight class. I'm fighting in 24 hours. I am pretty dehydrated. How, what do you tell your athletes to do in that 24 hours from the time they make the weight on the scale to get themselves ready to actually perform? We're really fortunate that we don't need to just tell them very often. Um, we have resources that we can kind of put it in their hand and then ask them to drink <laughs> cadence. But we're, we're providing resources and, and information and education around how to optimally rehydrate from some pretty significant dehydrated states. When you're pushing 10% dehydration, that's a pretty significant amount of fluid. And it's a, kind of like your arm, right? That's like yeah. how, much, how much weight we just lost. So we want to think about being very strategic. And there's a very specific gut tolerance for those types of things like carbohydrates and electrolytes and salt, where if you provide too much, then you can create an osmotic shift that causes a lot of gut cramping because you're pulling too much fluids into your gut and you can't process those amount of solute as rapidly as you need to. Alternatively, if you're providing not enough of those, you can actually dilute your blood and create a state called hyponatremia. And so some of our athletes right off the scale, they start chugging a lot of water. You see this in endurance sports as well. When, when marathoners or ultra marathoners or triathletes will drink too dilute of a beverage and they essentially create a dehydration state by diluting their blood, creating a, essentially um, not enough electrolytes to maintain muscular contraction, and which includes the heart, which has ended tragically for some. So we have to be very specific around programming and prescribing the right amount of electrolytes, carbohydrates, and specifically salt as our primary electrolyte that we lose in the, in the sweat so that we can maintain the fluids that we're consuming. And we have about a six-hour target where the body's most needy of specific um, amounts of electrolytes, but also kind of craving it. Once we get past that, then the athletes can kind of use their own taste and preferences to meet their needs. But we, um, yeah, we're essentially prescribing rehydration for about six hours. Um, within that, we also have a progression of food, starting with kind of semi-solid. Uh, we use a product called Fuel for Fire, which is like a fruit puree with protein. Start the digestive process, move on to kind of snacky carbs, crackers, processed breads, white breads, bagels, moving into like some easy to digest meals that are going to be like your quick oats or white pasta, those types of things that, that athletes would have as a comfort food. So the processed foods come in right after the weigh-in, but I'm assuming that, that those are things that you guys try to keep have people avoid through the normal course of their training. Is there a particular type of diet that you advocate for folks on a regular basis? So that, that's a great point. And, and what I'll say is we really try to stay away from diet dogma where this diet is the answer. It's really about what is the optimal way to feed an individual or myself at any given moment. And in like, if you're training a lot, processed food is going to be better because we can get more nutrients in a shorter amount of time and it's readily available. That's what processing food does is it reduces our body's need to digest. And so if, if our athletes are training for six hours a day, and they struggle to get enough calories. And we want more processed foods because it's easier to deliver to the muscles and the organs and the, and the area that the body needs it to. 
in terms of specific diet, again, we try to stay out of those diet, kind of the diet dogma and support athletes in, in what they feel works for them. I, I have a saying that, that I like to use and, and my team uses is you are the world's leading expert in yourself. And so mm-hmm. I'm not here to tell you what you need to do or what you should do. I'll share, I'll reflect back some of the experiences that I've had as a competitor, but also, you know, especially as a, as a practitioner in the space, but we need to work within the constraints of, of what works for you. And so in that, in that case, we'll meet the athlete where they are. We tend to discourage restrictive dieting, especially in camp. So real popular diets right now would be kind of the intermittent fasting and the ketogenic diets. Yeah, there's, there's some literature that applies to certain populations, even maybe some athletic populations. But when you're training multiple times a day for multiple weeks in a row, you just cannot recover when you're in a time-restricted diet. So mm-hmm. intermittent fasting says, okay, we're going to eat eight, 10, 12, 16 hours a day and then fast the rest of the day. And so what you do when you're fasting is yeah, you may drive some blood sugar management properties within your body, but you're also not facilitating recovery. And that's the, that's the critical thing. And so it's, it's very much a cost benefit of we need energy to be available to do the work and to recover. And so those types of diets that restrict calories or restrict timing can be very, very detrimental over a fight camp. Many people will start those diets and feel great for two weeks, but then when you have this training load, it just crashes. So my, my overall approach is going to be to nutrient, nutrient timing is critical, providing energy in real time to support the work that you're about to do. So the four hour window before a training session is really critical or really in the four-hour window before you do anything. So sleep is about as low intensity and activity as you could possibly do. And so we don't need to necessarily carb load before we sleep. So we want to think about preparing the body to do the work that needs in that three to four-hour window before you do it. I feel like I could ask you 7,000 questions right now, but I want to ask you, so a lot of these guys are getting up in the morning and probably having some significant food and doing that MMA style workout that you were talking about. When it comes to fight night, the fight sometimes, especially if they're a main event, might not be till 10 or 11 o'clock at night, which is going to completely reverse their carb needs to a totally different time of the day. How do you advise them to handle that? Yeah, most of the time, especially when you have main event fighters, they're going to be training at their competition time. They do. You're just you're going to be structuring the food to reflect the training demands, and then the training demands is outside of my really locus of control. So we facilitate feeding and recovery processes in relation to their training structure. We will counsel either not necessarily me and my team, but we have our strength coaches. Our sports science team may counsel around, you know, training structure and, and timing of that. Um, and then we would, we would support the fueling component of that. In terms of some of the odd competition times, yeah, in, if you're fighting on the East Coast or if you're in Rio de Janeiro, it's going to be 1, 2 in the morning if you're the main event. Um, when we were in Abu Dhabi, those fights went from 2 a.m. to 8 a.m. So true, like for local time, because they, they stayed on the American TV schedule. And so that's just insane. So we built out like a really complex um, and comprehensive structure around when are you sleeping, when are you preparing for sleep, when are you activating to get your brain and your body moving, when are you napping, when are you having specific supplements. So food actually has a really critical impact on the circadian rhythm. What we're trying to do is to use food to facilitate the hormonal response. So to your point, though, it can be really challenging in the training structure to provide the nutrients that you need in that, in that regard. Um, especially if some of our athletes are training late at night and then 
they're wired in and stuff to get to bed. So we, we, we will use nutrition, but we'll also connect with some of our other resources around breath work and, and things of that nature to help to manage that. If you're an athlete who wants to stay on there, that time zone, 2 to 8 a.m., and that's when the fights are, are happening, how long does it take if you're like a normal person and you sleep from, I don't know, say 11 to 7 or something, how long does it take to adjust to a schedule like that? Yeah, I mean, the, the science says for every time zone you cross, you want a day to optimally adjust to that, but we just can't do that. So our athletes are getting there Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, right before their fight, which is going to be Saturday. Um, and so what we recommend is essentially you start before you get on the plane, when you're on the plane, and then as soon as you land, so that from the US to Abu Dhabi, it's like a 16 hour flight, going to sleep about half of that. So time when you sleep based on when you want to be awake when you get there. And then the key is identifying when you need to sleep, when you need to be awake, and being very, very diligent about that. The people that really struggle are those that sleep when they feel tired and, and mm. wake up when they when they don't. Instead, you need to be very consistent and things like melatonin as a supplement can help to adjust your circadian rhythm. And those who have used melatonin before know that it's not like Ambien where Ambien or a, a sleep aid knocks you out, but it actually doesn't facilitate restful sleep. Melatonin is a, is a neurotransmitter that tells your body it's time for rest. It's time for nighttime. You need to accompany that with sleep hygiene you know, make sure you have a dark, cool room, you're off the of screens for an hour, you're breathing or doing meditation or reading or, or whatever it looks like, but that can facilitate your body recognizing, okay, this is the time to sleep. This is the time to be awake. And we had different sleep cycles based on when on the fight card, these athletes were fighting. Some would go to bed at 4 PM, wake up at 4 AM to fight at 8 AM. Others would wake up at 5 AM and train. And it was all very different based on when their schedule was. So um, the key is just being consistent with that and eating as soon as you wake up and then not having a ton of starchy carbohydrates or before bed that might make you wired, which, which tends to happen for a lot of athletes just in the general training uh, dynamic. Is that kind of adjustment more difficult mentally or physically? I think it re on the mental side, it just requires a lot of buy-in. So I've been to Abu Dhabi three times now and I haven't had any issues transitioning. I think a, a big part of it is just like being committed to it. The times I went, we had a 48 hour mandatory quarantine as well. So it like mm -hmm. gave you two days to like, just get on cycle. This next time we're going out there in uh, the end of this month and the end of October, there's not going to be a quarantine as far as we know. So it's going to be a, a different question in terms of how are people transitioning when you have to get up and go to your job or get up and, and do media for the athletes and things like that. So I think on the, on the physical side, um, we have some tools and, and the biggest part is like being committed to it on, on the psychological side. You mentioned melatonin as a supplement. What are the supplements that you recommend across the board for all of your athletes? Are there any that you think everyone needs to take? Yeah, we, we have a pretty robust supplementation program through our partnership with Thorn Health, which is very empowering for us. Combat sport athletes that are oftentimes in an energy deficit, we want to make sure we're filling those gaps just on a health and wellness standpoint. So we break our supplementation down into a few different categories. Inflammation and brain health is kind of a, a critical component for, I think, everybody day to day, but especially our athletes that hit and get hit in the brain uh, for a living. So we're looking at omega-3 as a critical component. Curcumin is a spice that's turmeric, that's um, a spice in, in a lot of kind of uh, Indian and those robust flavors uh, that, that you find there. So we use Mariva through Thorm. Glutathione is a potent antioxidant cofactor, um, both in your organs and your brain and gut. 
So that's a critical one that we use quite a bit. They also look at gut health and immune system. So we're looking to provide probiotics. If we're exposing our athletes to energy restriction, dehydration, and heat, which is essentially fight week, we use L-glutamine to provide mm-hmm. the nutrients for the um, for the gut to heal itself, helps prevent leaky gut, and which is critical to maintaining the gut health. We'll fill the gaps with a, just a, a general multi, and then we, we use a variety of different supplements for kind of performance benefits. So we have a recent kind of nootropic that is around cognition, brain health, and focus, beta-alanine around energy system development, essentially blood buffering, allowing your body to operate at your anaerobic threshold for longer. And then creatine monohydrate is really well evidence-based, both for performance, building that alactic power, but also around providing an energy source for the brain preventatively for potential concussion and then also for the recovery process. So it's kind of a quick and dirty version of our supplementation. It's it's a lot of supplementation. So are you making these athletes like one massive shake of all of that? Or is this spaced out through the day? How do you get all that in? Yeah. I mean, pill fatigue is a real thing. So we <laughs> will we'll adjust our programming based on an athlete's ability to maintain buy-in and follow through with it. Some athletes will give like two or three recommendations and then provide that for them. Others, it'll be 30 and they're able to manage that. So it's, it's really dependent upon the athlete. Some are powders, some are pills. And so the powders will tend to mix in like, like pre or post-workout. Um, and then the, the pills will, will dose either morning, night, or, or with meal. Um, we, we tend to try to prescribe that to be like twice a day, kind of morning and night, which is most convenient. I want to make this stuff a little bit applicable to the normal folks. What tips would you give someone who just wants to lose weight and gain lean muscle? Yeah, focus on your nutrition timing. Make sure you get energy when your body needs it and your brain. And make sure that you're you're not underfueling all day because the bet the what underfueling all day, whether it's just for you know working a desk job or if you're physically active, that impairs your metabolic health and drives a lot of the cravings that come up at the end of the day. And that's a really good way to derail yourself is if you create that impairment. So really nutrient timing is going to be the most critical thing to support long-term health and and kind of body weight management. Do you have a go-to pre-workout meal? I don't. And I say that because it really depends on what the workout is. If I'm going to go kill myself, then we're going to want to make sure we get plenty of carbohydrates in there. PB and J might be a really good option, but if you're if you're just going for something that's lower intensity, more kind of um, you know a jog or something that's technical or lighter in training, then you can kind of get away with something that may not be quite as caloric and, and carbohydrate rich. When you fly to Abu Dhabi, what are your go-to snacks that are in your duffel bag on the plane? Great question. I'll bring some nuts, like trail mix, protein bars, kind of like beef jerky, those meat, meat bark type things. And yeah, just making sure I have good quality protein is kind of the the most important thing for me when I'm thinking about my snacks. Do you have a go-to hydration product? Yeah, we use Catalyte by Thorne is really great. Broad mineral, uh, which is reflecting a lot of the sweat loss and tastes delicious. We'll mix that with our magnesium quite a bit too, which facilitates muscle repair. And what, what about stuff for like sleeping? Like if you, you know, you mentioned the melatonin, if you're going to try to knock yourself out naturally on an airplane, what do you take? Yeah. Melatonin, especially if you want to maintain a sleep cycle, that's pretty much the only thing that, that we'll do. 
Magnesium is a mineral that most everybody, especially athletes are deficient in. It's also a precursor to melatonin. So Mm -hmm. if you kind of double up with a little magnesium and then melatonin, you're hitting it from two different pathways. One's kind of a more quick acting, one's a little bit more slow and steady. So that's a really good way to do it as well. I mentioned those really pretty food pictures that you have on Instagram. Do you have any kind of a cooking background? No, I do not. Uh, (laughs) My parents are are really great scratch cooks. So just kind of grew up in that environment. And through my dietetic education, we we had a fair amount of time in the kitchen. When we're short-staffed here, I'll jump in. We've only had to do that a couple of times, but really it's about providing the insights that I need in order to connect with our, our kitchen staff. So that's pretty much where it is. And I have two young kids and a, and a working wife that were bit, both busy as, as can be. So I end up being responsible for most of our family dinners, but that's like, what can I make in 15 minutes before uh, every, you know everybody goes crazy? Do you ever look back and say, I was an all-American athlete at Cornell 20 years ago, eating rice and broccoli when I shouldn't have been. Do you ever think about what you know now that you didn't know then and how things would have been different? Like how much have things changed over those two decades? Yeah. Great question. So I don't think the rice and broccoli, I mean, <laughs> so I did grow out of my weight class and ended up going up two weight classes, which is where I had most of my success. So I went from 165 up to 184. That's where I was all American and then was on the national team. So I, I certainly kind of learned some hard, some hard lessons and then made the adjustments and, you know, end up being much healthier and, and happier and everything else. And I'm a big advocate of, of wrestling closer to your natural weight. And that's something that at Cornell, we really kind of revolutionized in the collegiate wrestling space. So I'm really proud of that. The nutrition piece, certainly my insights have grown exponentially because that's, that's where I do my work. But being able to work with such amazing colleagues here, I'm learning every day more about energy systems and recovery and in a lot of the different areas that complement nutrition. And some of those where training like crazy, running myself into the ground, but maybe could have done it smarter, could have done it in a way that might've been more applicable to my sport. Those are the things that, that I wish I would have had in my toolkit um, back in the day. It's so fun. There's so, I, I think about it all the time. I'm 44 looking back at, or about to be 44. I'm not 44 yet. My collegiate athletic career. And, and if I was as fit as I was maybe two years ago when I was in college, how different things would have been. It's just, it's, it's amazing how much things have changed. But anyway, where can folks uh, follow you, Clint? I am on Twitter and Instagram as at sport RD Clint. And those are probably the, the most accessible on social. Um, and then if, yeah, if there's email requests, uh, I'm available through the UFC. Cool. Well, I thank you so much for joining us. I could talk to you honestly for like three hours. I find the whole weight cutting thing so fascinating. And just even just as it pertains to people who want to drop weight quickly to fit into their wedding dresses or their suits, because I feel like people do a lot of weird things when they're trying to do that. So this has been really, really great. And and I thank you so much for uh, joining us. Absolutely. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me and look forward to being in touch. Cool. Thanks so much, Clint. Have a great day. You too. Thanks so much to Clint for joining us on Food of the Gods. To learn more about how Clint helps to safely fuel fighters of all sizes from all over the world, you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at at 
sportsrd underscore Clint. You can also follow the UFC at at UFC. Until next time, for more information on Food of the Gods or to download other episodes, visit us at foodofthegodspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at at foodofthegodspod or email us at foodofthegodspodcast at gmail.com. Food of the Gods is a Digitant Podcast production.